going now. Fred, good evening. Good evening, hello. Good to see you How, again. How are you, my friend? I'm so happy to see you. Uh, absolutely well. Wonderful. How's, how's life? Life is good. Absolutely. I've, I've, I've missed you this year at all the fairs. Yeah, that's one of the disadvantages this year. We meet a lot and talk a lot virtually, uh, but but giving you a hug is actually something I'm looking forward to. Same here, same here. Are you in Vienna today? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, in Vienna, sitting at home actually. It's 9 p.m. here, so uh, it's dark, uh, getting late autumn and, and winter is coming. So, uh, and uh, uh, we're in a situation where going out really uh, isn't as attractive as it used to be, uh, so I'm, I'm home, yeah. So good to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me. This is actually the first time uh, in the Aceless Live series that we are sitting um, in the evening. Everybody wants to do it during daytime. All our viewers, and we have thousands of viewers accumulated now because this is the 15th episode, asked me to do one A in the evening, so hereby we listen to our listeners. And they asked me to do one in the store. During daytime, I can't do it because it's too busy here. Of course, yeah. So thank you for all the viewers and the feedback. I know a lot of people were excited also to see the session with you, Fred. Um, <clears throat> I can do a brief intro, um, but actually I want you to introduce yourself. But we known each other now for quite some time. And we became actually friends for our shared passion for Brightling and obviously for wristwatches and vintage watches, but it was Breitling that we philosophized a lot with uh, my friend and colleague Dala as well. Um, but maybe you can give a short intro, uh, Fred, who you are and uh, why you stepped out of the shadow and into the limelight, because you were only known as Watchfred. And those that are watching and don't know Fred, definitely check him on Instagram. Okay. Uh, I've actually been, quote-unquote, out uh, of the, the Watchfred bubble for some time. Uh, from the moment I started to work with Breitling officially, uh, you can't really step on a stage together with George Kern uh, and not say who you are or what your name is. Uh, but for years I was on Fora, of course. Uh, it was all, of course, an alias, and I was, I've been Watchfred for many, many years. Uh, but it's changed now, so it's Watch Fred. My uh, first name really is Fred, uh, but it's Fred Mandelbaum and not Watch. Exactly <laughs> what a lot of people tell. So Fred is very modest, but I dare to call you one of the biggest collectors of vintage chronographs. Can I say that, Fred? I know uh, you're you can more probably, more. No, you can probably uh, easily say that, uh, although being a big collector is of zero relevance, you know. You can have thousands of watches, think you're a big collector, and not even one of your watches is truly interesting, and then you're actually a poor excuse for a collector. And uh, I know people who have five, six, seven watches, uh, because they're strong enough, which I'm not. I'm, I'm addicted to watches, so I don't sell them. Uh, but some people are strong enough you know, to, to truly optimize their collection, look for the best pieces in the world, the rarest pieces in the world. So you can, be, you can have five watches 
and be one of the most relevant collectors in the world. And sadly, I know many, many people who think that quantity or value are truly relevant. That for me really isn't, 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 isn't what we're talking about. Mm. That's uh, so, uh, yeah, what I'd say I have a rather relevant chronograph collection. I could live with that. And you definitely have a huge chronograph collection. Big corn, you collect all brands. The cornerstone in your collection is Brightling, though, that has a big part of your passion and love. Do you have, um, and I don't want to use the word big, significant private collection of Brightlings? Because obviously, Brightling has a museum as well. I have more watches than Brightling has in the museum. Both in quantity and quality, if I may say. So, uh, but that's fine. Brightling, uh, Brightling neglected. We have a different Brightling today. Brightling, uh, there's three periods actually. There's the original period of the Brightling family. Then there's a period uh, under the Schneiders, and I admire the Schneiders. They saved Brightling from oblivion. Uh, but uh, for many, many years, they neglected a lot of their heritage. And now we are in the third period of Breitling, that is the, the camp period, and, and Breitling is really rediscovering their own roots. I've helped them a little along the way, hope to keep on doing that, uh, because there's, there's a lot more to discover that, that hasn't found its expression yet in the current model line but you'll see you'll keep watching what writing is launching and i think you'll see during the next years uh that uh they're, they're very very serious about their heritage and really put their history and their icons of the past in the limelight while not forgetting modernity i uh, i agree with you although I do want to defend the Schneiders that they were amazing. Uh, I wasn't uh, attacking the Schneiders. No, 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 um, I think, I think, and that's an interesting thing that in the modernity of today, retro and vintage is such a big thing, and that's what I want to discuss with you later. I want to discuss the art of collecting and what I think Schneider needed to do to revive uh, in a time where quartz conquered everything and killed the mechanical world in '84, '83 when they launched the chronomat, which is reissued now. And tomorrow, we have something interesting to be launched. So uh, definitely those that are watching, tune in tomorrow at 2 o'clock, I believe, is the worldwide uh, launch of a new series. So that's going to be exciting. But before we dive into that, Fred, we need to do something. And I'm actually very excited to do a wrist check with you because you have a vast collection to choose from. What did you strap on tonight? Uh, that's a funny thing. Uh, I wouldn't have expected this to happen. Uh, but I've been wearing, and normally I wear a watch for a day or two mm -hmm. and then switch, get up in the morning and then it's a kind of, of mood thing. What do I feel like wearing today? Funnily enough, uh, for several months now, it's actually started, the delivery was uh, 
in, in July, late July, early August, uh, delivery of the Super Ocean 57 started. And the funny thing is, uh, it's such a comfortable watch that I've been wearing it most of the time. So uh, I've neglected my vintage watches a bit. I still Are wear you wearing a modern watch. I'm wearing uh, a vintage inspired modern watch here. Yeah. Uh, isn't that surprising? And I've been wearing it, uh, I'd say, five out of seven days approximately. And that is something that hasn't happened for decades. Uh, so the surprising thing is you can switch to it. Here you go. It's the rainbow. It's the rainbow, yeah. It's the rainbow, and it's the first rainbow, so it's the black version, right? It's the black, it's the black rainbow, yeah. So uh, we, can, we can switch back. Uh, yeah, I've been wearing them, and uh, actually all of them uh, have become, I, knowing you know me, uh, I, of course, I couldn't have only the rainbow, so uh, I needed them all. You can switch to the uh, screen cam now. Uh, so uh, these are all yours, Fred. Uh, actually, no. The funny thing is that uh, one of the watches went to to a good friend. He may be watching uh, Mike Stockton from uh, Fratello. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I have three of them. Nice. So tell me something now that we're at, at this watch. So this is a vintage inspired, the original design of the Super Ocean. It's called the Super Ocean uh, Heritage 57. It's a capsule collection. So what George Kern introduced with his amazing team is every year they create a capsule collection. It, they're not really limited editions, although these rainbows are. But let's take the regular model. So with a Super Luminova in one color and they are produced for a limited time and it's a tribute and homage you often help them reinterpret them don't you uh, <clears throat> yes i do uh, very intensely so uh, 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 what you do is some of the vintage watches uh, you can with two uh, with reinterpretations and re-editions some of the vintage watches are just too small for today's market, too small for today's tastes, and that's another problem. Uh, they are too small for the current calibers we have available. Uh, so the original Super Ocean, the case itself, was 34 millimeter, uh, 30, a, bit, a bit above it, in 34 and 35. Mm -hmm. With uh, the bezel, it came to a bit below 39. Uh, but a 34 millimeter, 35 millimeter watch uh, is, is just too small for today to be sold. You can sell a limited edition of 100 pieces maybe, but not for the wide market, not for tens of thousands. Uh, so uh, there we took we tried to grab the spirit. Sylvain Bernard, the head of design for Breitling, is extremely good in that. So we're we're sitting there. We're trying to to work out what the characteristics are, what the unique design elements are, and then uh, adapt them to slightly 
larger sizes. That's a watch we're here talking. We're talking about a watch that's 38 millimeter in diameter here. If you'd have told anybody five years ago that Breitling would do uh, a gentleman's watch with 38 millimeter, they may have laughed at you. Uh, it's 38 with the bezel, it's 42. It looks impressive and large on the wrist, but it's extremely slim and small. It's 9.9 .9 millimeter high, including the bezel. So it's extremely, it's sublimely comfortable. And that's it's a watch that stage, is just the bestseller, The bestseller in Brightling's collection was, is and was very long, the Super Ocean Heritage in the 46 millimeters. So it's very true what you said. Nobody would have expected that. I think we're going to a trend where smaller uh, is definitely uh, the, the present uh, day trend that we see. Pink and slim. We might. I think that that fat. You know those those uh, boldness isn't out. Boldness is still in, uh, but but clumsiness is out. Some of the old watches, watch designs were just huge on the wrist. You couldn't put them. Uh, wear them with a with a with a jacket. Uh, so slimmer, more elegant, uh, sleeker designs, but definitely not small. Forty-two millimeter watch, by all means, isn't a small watch, but it looks extremely elegant on the wrist. So I totally agree with you. And I don't know if you've read the article on Fratello watches by Rob Nuds, which he created the vii the visual impact index so it's all about proportions yeah yeah he's <laughs> so I, I totally agree with him and i think that's what happened to this capsule collection and i think you guys did an ex excellent job on it the comments are flowing in i was just looking at the comments and the questions so we have like 10 comments i want one can you help us out so we'll get to that later um what i wanted to ask you about the super ocean the original you have an original one and multiple ones don't you uh yes i do uh, you want to share one now physically or on the screen or you want to keep it for uh, later i think i have it physically yes i brought it physically so for those that um are waiting in the time being while fred grabs these watches because he has many many watches on the table next to him i'm gonna run into some comments in the time being Dan occasionally likes things, says hello. Hi, Dan. Good to see you. Uh, make sure to follow him. Every Sunday, he sits down with Arthur, and they call the show Call the AD. It's an Instagram show, and I recommend them to use. To the camera so you know what we're looking at. Okay, I'm turning it on. So, uh, yeah, we have some watches physically, too. So we'll see what what we need while we're discussing it. But now we wanted the super oceans, right? Yes. So that's we're often asked. Opa, stunning. Uh, yes, it's stunning, although the camera really doesn't, we may have a little bit, a little bit too much light. Let me try and reduce that a little. So what caliber is this, Fred, while you're tuning the light? Okay, I think we're better now. Uh, let's have... What caliber does this have, Fred? Do you know? Is it a Venus? Is it a Valjoux? 
of course I know just a second uh, you can switch to the screen if you want yeah the screen larger I'm not 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 not, not as nice as the watch let me see if I can blow you up no, not me. <laughs> okay, so that's uh, the watch we fear physically. Uh, this is one of the problems uh, we have. One of the models we're thinking about, of course, is also this that might. Uh, everybody's asking us, what about that? Uh, this is a, a Venus cal uh, caliber 150, mm -hmm. and this is so small and slim that it fits into that case. We're currently evaluating possibilities what movements to use here because we've got the problem that the bracket needs to be uh cost chromator certified and yes. uh, it's not not that easy to to do that with the smaller movements amazing thank you for sharing okay so and here, for you i put on well, my 1969 navy timer when I bought it, you know, I was told it was a Venus caliber. I sent it to Breitling to be overhauled. Took 22 months. Got it back. Super happy. On one of the factory visits to Le Chaux de Fonds, when I visited, a watchmaker was so nice to run the archives for me. And it's actually a Valjoux movement in a series produced of 2,000 pieces. He could find that in the extracts. The museum actually tried to buy it, but I wouldn't sell. So... Can you tell me a little anecdote why Breitling used double plane logos? So you had the AOPO logos, right, for the Air Airplane Owners Association? Uh, there's a you funny and surprising situation with these. Do you know where that logo originated? No. Okay, it was actually a Navitimer logo. It was done for the Transocean and super ocean if you switch to the camera you'll see where it comes from is it visible yes it is yes. so here's this is where the twin, twin plane logo originated uh, it was for the trans ocean and super ocean in 1957 and uh, only in 1965 they decided to use that logo for the Navitimer mm -hmm. because Navitimer logo uh, was a never-ending story. They started, if we, uh, we can talk about the Navitimer a little, uh, the Navitimer actually wasn't meant to be a Breitling. Yes. The original plan was to have it sold through AOPA, the aircraft owners and pilots association only. So the first uh, Navi timers had no Breitling branding on the dials yeah. uh, and were just branded AOPA, just on the case back. Uh, and uh, then they saw that it was extremely successful. It was a runaway hit. Everybody wanted it. So they started to brand it Breitling too, uh, but they had no logo ready. So they used the same wings that the Opa uses, but took out the Opa letters. So this was the Breitling Navitimer, and it took them until 1965, 11 years, to finally work out not to use the Opa wings 
for Brighting branded Navitimers anymore. And this is when they decided to use the Superocean and Transocean logo. Funny. Now, the reason for the twin planes, uh, why did they use it on the Superocean on a dive watch? There's no good explanation for that. But the Transocean was positioned as a world traveler's watch. Extremely slim, very elegant automatic watches. Uh, so they thought a plane would be a good idea. So this is how it came to Superocean and Transocean to finally land on the Navi timers 10 years later. Funny. So you see, Professor Breitling, you taught me something. I've read a bit about it. I heard theories about it. And it's a bit similar to Omega Seamaster and Speedmaster because you have the seahorse on both case backs, which also confuses people. So Yeah. There's actually, there's a, there was no good reason no. to use a twin plane logo no. on the first dive watch. No, no reason whatsoever. They just ran out of other ideas. Uh, Omega already had the seahorse probably that was, I have no idea what the reason was. There's nobody around who can tell us. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's how we ended up uh, with the twin plane logo. Amazing. Thank you for sharing, Fred. See, so even I learn every day. Listen, Fred, we have so many questions from the viewers. Do you want to run the seven DA questions or do you want to dive in to questions? Uh, whatever it is, uh, I'm here to, to tell people what they're interested in and not what I want to hear myself okay. tell. So I do want to do the questions because the feedback we've got that people really like our format and that we do these seven questions and that we do personal stuff. So let's go through them and then we'll go to our viewers. First question, Fred, what watch or jewel is your favorite and why? Uh, that's, uh, I mean, I have only one daughter, so that's, uh, I can't really compare that to children. But if I'd ask you, uh, which is your favorite child, uh, you'd have no answer. Okay. okay. Uh, so it's the same with watches. If you ask me about my favorite piece of jewelry, uh, it's my wedding ring. Okay, because it's the only jewel I have besides watches. And uh, uh, on a whim, sometimes, you know, you when I find a watch I've been hunting for years, of course, it's favorite for a certain period of time. But then very quickly, it's one of many and it's this, uh, it will not remain my favorite. For, so if you want uh, to know what my current favorite watch is, I have two. I found two important watches as uh, as long if you consider watches important, okay, we have to put that in, in perspective. I think the, the current, the year 2020 has uh, reminded us that it's always good to, uh, to put things in perspective. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you're a collector, especially an addict like I am, uh, so, uh, there's uh, rarity is something extremely relative. Okay. If we look at Chrono 24, so you probably have 15,000 rare watches or so their sellers claim. Rare Speedmasters, there's probably 400 of them every 
uh, every day on uh, Chrono 24, rare, rare Daytona is the same. Now, if, uh, for me to call a watch rare uh, means that, that it would probably take you years to hunt one down if you can ever find one. That's what I consider rare. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, one of the watches I assumed existed, you know, we spoke about Breitling production ledgers. Uh, they only start in uh, October 1944. Mm -hmm. The ledgers before that were lost. Nobody knows where they are. They're probably in an attic somewhere on, on Lake Geneva. Uh, but but we've been looking and nobody has found them. So our ledgers start in October 20, uh, 1944, and one of the rarest and most relevant Breitling, the Duograph, the Retropont, uh, was launched in summer 1944. So we have no production records. We don't know how many were produced. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the watches existed only in gold, Mm -hmm. uh, because it was produced in November 1944, and we always thought it's, uh, it must have been produced in steel too, but we didn't know it. So that's a watch that I found. We can yeah. now switch to it if you want. We're, we're okay. at it. I blew up the screen. Obviously, okay. I follow you daily on Instagram, and it's a highlight um, a highlighted moment in my day because I love your collection. This is I love Rattrapant movements, and this is mind blowing. Okay, so, so for people that don't know how the movement looks, I'll put on put up the, the movement. This is art. Uh, okay, this is a Venus Venus Caliber one seven nine, as said introduced uh, in early early to mid nineteen forty four. Uh, produced until the late 1940s and uh, until some years ago, uh, relevant uh, my, uh, brand, uh, brands were still searching for that movement uh, to produce their line of watches. It's one of the loveliest and, and uh, most outstanding, outstanding chronograph movements. And as I, uh, as I said, uh, we knew it existed in uh, in gold, and all the pieces that came up during the last years of that particular reference uh, were produced in 1970. It was one batch made in 1970 uh, of 20 pieces, and one unknown batch, probably less than 10, were manufacturers in 1944. These were uh, always uh, assembled on order uh, so the others were lost this is the first of that reference it's a 38 millimeter steel rattrapant stunning uh, as i said uh, that's truly rare because it's the only one stunning and for those that are watching and don't know what the rattrapant means in german it's a double chronograph it's a split second chronograph anyways difficult to make it's a complication that's very elegant very stunning and what gives it away is the double second hands on the central axis stunning fred congratulations and uh, okay, we spoke about the navi timer yes i'll show you a navi timer in reality i think it's somewhere it is 
So that's an interesting piece because, you know, the things we learn, it's actually relatively new. Okay, but uh, I have a picture here too. Let's switch to the, uh, to the pictures. So this is with the AOPO logo, right? Uh, this is, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that. You asked about, uh, so the interesting thing is the first 100 pieces that were produced, uh, were produced without brightling on uh, the dial, uh, but so were uh, another 1,000 or 1,100. But the very first 100 have a different second hand and they have different shorter lugs mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's uh, a reference that, that this would be the Navi timer grail one of the first 100 produced uh, less than a handful of those uh, have survived so this is oh, on this other one. if I may ask you they started off with the Navy Times with the rice bead lunette bezel. Yeah. When did they go to the faceted one? And did they produce them simultaneously? Uh, no. no. Uh, so we are, let me see if I have anything here from that period. Apparently, funnily enough, no, they're all, they're all beaded. Uh, so, uh, the beads actually get bigger every year or every second year. We start with 126 beads, then the beads get bigger. Uh, this is in 1959 uh, for Uti. Uti was uh, the France. Uh, uh, we, I'm actually showing it uh, on the screen. Uh, on, I'm on showing screen? pictures. Yeah. Can we switch? Yeah. Okay, the other way around. Me small, watch big. Okay. Uh, and uh, in 1963, we first moved from uh, the all black dial to the reverse panda dial. I'm sure I have a good picture of that one. Tell me, Fred, what are you using there? What is that uh, CMS that you're using? Uh, that's uh, Imager. It's okay. actually... Okay, so if you want to switch to it, so this is uh, a 1965 twin plane, one of the first ones uh, with uh, the uh, reverse panda bezel. So we're starting out beaded bezel, then we we change from beaded bezel from uh, all black to beaded bezel and reverse panda already with the new hands, and then uh, in the year afterwards, there's a very short period uh, with uh, uh, a, a, a larger ridges, and then we go to the final serrative. Okay, so this is. Beads from 1954 to 63, and then 64 and onwards with serrated bezels. Stunning. Thank you, Fred. Question two. What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, actually, always 
there, there were plans, and this is what I studied uh, of, of finishing law. Uh, but uh, parallel to my studies, uh, I started building a company. Uh, so quite quite soon, actually, uh, uh, studying was was part time, and, and managing that company uh, started started to be full time. Uh, what I did uh, during those years too is I uh, uh, also worked for an airline, but uh, the uh, the plans actually were theoretically be a lawyer, mm -hmm. practically always build a business. Uh, so that's uh, that's how it went. Nice. And today you're by day tech entrepreneur and twenty four seven watch enthusiast. Uh, that's true. Yeah, uh, that's, that's good description actually. And and a great father and husband because I love your posts on Friday night. Always tribute to your lovely wife and daughter. Um, who is or was your role model? That's uh, nobody well known. Uh, my role model was probably my father, uh, and still is. He passed away many years ago, but uh, you're lucky enough to to still have your father, and uh, as we say, until 120 at least. Uh, now, my father was neither rich nor he was a very good dancer, which I'm not. Uh, but uh, he had the friendliest, biggest heart you can imagine. He was the warmest, most respectful, the happiest person. I mean, uh, look, uh, he fled Poland to Russia in uh, 1939 when the Germans invaded. Uh, he spent years in the in the gulags uh, in Siberia, mm -hmm. and typically for him, he had only good stories. He had only good things he remembered. People that helped him, people that he could help. Uh, so, uh, frankly, he's probably uh, and he was the best father in the world. He was my best, still is. Uh, uh, again. Hope uh, for, for many years you won't have to learn that, but but my father passed away more than twenty years ago, and I still talk to him daily. I know what he would say. I know he'd tell me, "Don't take yourself too seriously." I know he'd tell me, "No matter how tough things look now, be sure the troubles will be over and the sun will shine again." So this is. Again, if we're talking about a true role model, I could talk, uh, tell you about Sir Karl Popper, Eli Wiesel, or this uh, is the best. No, 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 no. The true role model is somebody with uh, uh, friendship and love for everyone. Beautiful, uh, my father. Beautiful. Bless his memory, and I can concur that the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Because you're very kind, very modest, always friendly, and um, and I and I'm quite sure your daughter sees you as a role model. So thank you for sharing, Fred. Fourth question: If you could teleport tomorrow, where would you go? Uh, teleport tomorrow, uh, I somewhere. Uh, it's a bit late already, but I'd, I'd probably still try. 
to go to Sicily uh, and uh, sit somewhere on the southern on the on the southern beaches of of Sicily, uh, sip an espresso. If I may, I'd I'd like to take some of my friends along. Uh, I'm really missing that. I'm, I'm less missing. Uh, yeah, I'd love to be back in the Seychelles or Mauritius or whatever. Uh, but that that feeling of uh, uh, a small a small beach uh, bar uh, in Sicily where the espresso is still one euro. Uh, that's what I'm missing. I feel much more than the Cote or. or luxurious five or six or seven styles i'm missing those bars as i said down to earth question five what book are you currently reading uh what book am i currently reading i'm just finishing uh faithlessness by imre Kertes. okay i don't know, know you, uh, you should read it it's not oh. an easy not an easy book to read uh, and it, it Take some time, and and uh, uh, you have to be strong. To uh, it's a Holocaust story uh, about a boy. Uh, then the book before that, I reread. Uh, uh, you know David Grossman. Mm -hmm. uh, I reread "See Under Love" again, uh, Erchava, which is an outstanding book. Uh, before that. Uh, yeah, yeah, what language do you read a translated book like that? He's an Israeli writer, so would you read uh, he's it? An he's an Israeli, but his English uh, uh, translations are, are just wonderful. Yeah, so you didn't read it in German or Austrian? Uh, no, I normally, mostly, I also read, uh, read Amos Oz uh, yeah. in English because his uh, uh, translator is, is outstanding, yeah. uh, actually. Uh, so, uh, no, it's normally... It's I also, uh, my, my, my Hebrew reading is too slow. I do read Hebrew books, but Oz and Grossman, I choose the English translation over the yeah. Dutch. Yeah. Same here. Thank you for sharing. Sixth question. What do you think is going to be the color of 2021? Absolutely zero, no clue. <laughs> what do you hope it's going to be? Uh... I don't think uh, I love yellows and blues, uh, but uh, again, yellow ties and, and blue jackets is what I in the during the days people still wore ties. We don't do that anymore. A lot has changed, and I don't know how much of, of uh, dressing up will come back in the in the way it used to be. Uh, but uh, no, there's I love all colors, and and really I'm. Uh, who cares what I think will be the color of 2021? Uh, I don't don't really think that that's of relevance. Uh, and, will we uh, see more rainbows? You think? Sorry, rainbows. Whoever thought that we would have a rainbow in Brightling, do you think we'll have more of that? Uh, I can't Come talk on. about this. Next. Well, not too, not too soon uh, for sure, but we'll have other ideas uh, in that direction. Uh, and uh, I was extreme. I was uh, to tell you the truth. I was a bit afraid uh, about uh, the misogyny and the uh, homophobia that did arise for for some days. 
but it's gotten better and it's an extremely, extremely successful watch today. And I love the fact that the George uh, had the guts to go ahead and do that because there was nothing about LGBT or whatever. When, when Sylvain had that idea, it was an expression of love and joy and happiness and hope because yeah. this is what rainbows really stand for. Uh, and uh, I'm totally happy with anybody who sees that as a sign for himself. If the LGBT people love the watch because it reminds them of, of their own life, well, most welcome. Uh, for me, it's just uh, the joy of life, beach, sun, happiness, something all of us rather urgently need again. Hopefully, that's a fun thing. So last question, have you been to Amsterdam before and what's your favorite memory? Uh, now my favorite mem memories I'm not going to share uh, because the favorite memories are too long ago. Uh, I, the first time in Amsterdam uh, was I think 1976 or so and it was wild days in Amsterdam and I was very young and very wild. Uh, so uh, let's not share that. Okay. Uh, but I've I've been back quite often. I've been back with friends and 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 my wife. Uh, for years, I came every year for the ISE uh, trade show uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, although that that really doesn't count because when you're going to a trade show, you're actually not in the city, and Amsterdam deserves deserves better. Yeah. Uh, but uh, lots of of good memories uh, in, in Amsterdam. Uh, actually, the, the nicest memories, my wife, uh, my wonderful wife is from Turkey. And in Turkey, people do not ride bikes. Okay, it's just not done. You're driven by, uh, frankly, you wouldn't drive a bike in the, uh, bike in the, uh, in the streets of Istanbul. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was the same when she was young. Uh, and we tried to teach my wife riding a bicycle in Amsterdam, and we got very, very close uh, to a swimming lesson instead of a bike lesson. In the, <laughs> in, the last in the last second, we stopped her from falling into one of the one of the grachten. So that's the uh, that's Amsterdam. Funny. Thank you. So before we go into the questions of the viewers, I have loads of questions for you. The first and foremost one, what got you into collecting, into watches? What was the spark? There was no specific. Now, you don't wake up in the morning and say, I'll be a watch collector. Some people do. Uh, but but they normally don't become collectors. You know, these are the ones that, that look at other influences and said, "I want to be like this." Mm -hmm. uh, no, uh, it actually started out uh, using chronographs because this is what I did, uh, optimizing assembly processes, uh, etc. Uh, we didn't have anything but the chronograph in the 1980s. We used our chronograph to time processes, optimize processes, etc. Uh, no, I uh, used my, my wrist chronograph. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we signed, and I was, I don't even remember the brand. It was some 
it wasn't quartz, it was, but it was really not a nice watch. It was a tool. Mm -hmm. May have been a psycho, and may, uh, the, may the psycho gods forgive me. It wasn't a nice psycho. There's beautiful psychos. This was the beautiful one. Uh, and then I rewarded myself. We signed a, a large contract uh, to, to Russia, and uh, somehow it's still the same. What should a man do? I mean, you can't buy a boat if you live in Austria. It makes little sense. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, how many shoes can you have? So you buy yourself a present, you buy a nice watch. So the, the first one actually was uh, a memo box. Mm -hmm. uh, and somehow... Memo box? Did you buy new or pre-owned? Uh, that was brand new. Okay. Uh, and uh, this was late, must have been late 1980s. Uh, the watch uh, was a store, actually I don't have that watch anymore uh, because it was at at repairs uh, and uh, the jeweler uh, went bankrupt and was gone, including the watches uh, he had for repairs. So that's, and this, it started my interest and actually uh, started me looking at, at historic watches because when you have a memo box, you start looking at other memo boxes and you find out that actually the 1950s or 1960s memo box was actually more beautiful than the modern ones then. So this is uh, uh, where a bit, and then the next step was it was vintage and chronograph so the next step was buy a nice chronograph uh that was a girard perigot mm -hmm. uh from the 19 early 1950s uh and then slowly i started looking at chronographs more closely and the more closely you look at chronographs uh you start to understand that that Breitling had hugely impressive back catalogs. And this is where my Breitling love affair started sometime in the 1990s. So you tackled three questions for me already. So thank you for that. Um, before I ask you to share a bit of pieces you want to freestyle share about, is for those young collectors. I mean young in age, but also people at an old age that are young to the watch collecting scene. Would you be so kind to share some nuggets of information, uh, pitfalls they need to watch out, look out for, um, how should they collect? And that's on the axis of pre-owned vintage, but also on the axis of collecting in general. Would, would there be some tips you would like to share? Uh, now, the first, the first thing uh, is uh, make up your mind what type of collector you are. Mm -hmm. Are you collecting watches to impress others mm -hmm. or are you collecting watches to please yourself? Mm -hmm. uh, the next question, and, and both is, is fine. I mean, it's fine to say, okay, all my friends have point, point, point. 
I need a Rolex. Let's call it. I have to have a Rolex tool. Mm -hmm. uh, then, or you're somebody who says, "Okay, I'll probably not follow the crowd and see what really speaks to me. Mm -hmm. What's the watch that somehow makes my heart smile when I put it on?" Mm -hmm. And that's uh, really what what uh, watch collecting is about. That this is where it needs to start. You need to see what the watches are that you like. Is it Omega? Is it Breitling? Is it Univalzal Genève? Uh, do you want to go more niche and and start collecting uh, Galet? Whatever whatever the the, the type is. Uh, look what look what watches really really speak to you, uh, and then don't compromise. Don't compromise on quality. Uh, don't compromise on originality. Uh, do your research. Find the, the nice thing uh, about the watch community actually is uh, that people are ready to support you and help. Ask questions. Uh, see who your quote-unquote rabbi is uh, who will support you. If it's Breitling, message me on on, uh, on Instagram. Uh, on, on a good day, I have 30 or 40 people asking me about uh, vintage watches. We have, what, we have one of your biggest fans. He's already jumping for joy. He especially took off work because he had a night shift to be here. So okay. I'm going to give him the stage, and I hope you can guess who it is. Um, so you are his rabbi, FYI. He's not part of the congregation, but he is a member of the watch congregation. Yeah. So we're going to give him the stage as the first person soon. Um, and guys, Fred is not BSing. He really, really is there for the community. He, he is busy. He does run a big company. He's an entrepreneur, but he loves watches. He loves collecting, and he's there to answer any questions, and he is the authority on not only Breitling, but you see he's in walking encyclopedia, but actually anything that he knows, and he'll give you his unconditional uh, attention, but also objective advice. So if it's rubbish, he'll tell you. Right, Fred? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Did you want to add something to that or? Uh, no, but uh, again, uh, next point is uh, it's either brands. First of all, look at the complication you're interested in. Is it you need complications? Maybe it's enough to, to collect beautiful three-end watches. Calatrava. You can be a Calatrava collector and, and uh, have dozens of, find dozens of beautiful watches over the years. Uh, what, you could look at alarm watches. There's beautiful brands out there, beautiful models out there. Uh, define a niche and go into it. Start learning about it and, and build your uh, collection from stellar pieces. Better to have, we spoke about biggest collectors, better to have two beautiful, perfect watches than five mediocre ones. Leave the I concur with you. I always say quality over quantity. Okay. Uh, so uh, other segments. And then if you're going into uh, the, uh, let's say, chronograph segment, 
you could of course look at military chronographs, mm -hmm. pilots chronographs. There's niches. It's better uh, to to look at a niche, concentrate on a niche, and build a collection inside that niche, mm -hmm. uh, than having an example of multiple but but unconnected watches. Mm -hmm. So, if I may bounce back the ball to you, your trigger was using chronographs on your wrist for work. That sparked it. The memo folks marveled you because it was a mechanical alarm on your wrist. You looked at the heritage. That was your gateway drug into vintage. From there, you leaped back to chronographs, combining your two passions. What would you say are your niches? So you have an Axis chronograph, you have an Axis Breitling, so it's a brand, it's a niche. What would you say that your niches are and where does your focus go to right yeah, now? That, yeah, no, you're collecting for quite some decades now. Uh, that's the interesting point, and this is why I, I uh, don't follow what I'm doing, uh, <laughs> because I'm an addict. I have multiple niches. Okay, that's okay. Uh, so uh, I try to collect uh, military aviator chronographs. Mm -hmm. I try to collect elegant golden chronographs. I try to collect uh, date and moon phase complication chronographs. Uh, so these are all niches, and each of them would actually be enough for a sane person but I'm not saying, so I'm trying to build relevant collections in each of my sub-niches. Uh, this is something I suggest not to try uh, because it drives you crazy because there's still somewhere something that's, that's, that's missing or incomplete. Do you uh, let go of pieces? Sorry? Sorry to interrupt. Do you let go of pieces? Of course not. Okay, so let me ask you for those that don't have the financial opportunity to do so and they want to up their gaming quality in a quantity. Very smart, very smart, very smart. I'm just not smart enough to do that. Uh... Okay, this question for you, Fred, about the quantity versus quality issue. Let's say you have 5,000 euros budget. There are those that have the urge to have many quantity and they would buy, and I don't mean any disrespect, a Frederick Constant and an Oris and a Nomos, instead of buying, let's say, and I'm talking about new, not even pre-owned, instead of buying an Omega Moonwatch, for example. What is your advice there? Uh, I can't really, uh, very frankly, uh, it would be disrespectful towards Nomos uh, to put them below Omega, uh, especially uh, with new watches, uh, buy what speaks to you. Uh, if you're into chronographs, you might look at either historical icons. Uh, the Navi Timer would be such an example. The Speedmaster would be such an example. Uh, so watches that, that didn't appear yesterday and will disappear tomorrow, but watches that, that have defined uh, the the industry. So this is something I'd always be looking at. So if I don't know if does Nomos do chronographs? 
Not yet. And that's what we've been asking for for many years. Yeah, but still, uh, this isn't what I'd, I'd, I wouldn't go for a normal. It's good that they don't do chronographs, so I can give them as an example. <laughs> I wouldn't go for, for a normal chronograph because they have no history there. They, uh, they, they have to find a position in that, in that segment. Looking at chronographs, I'd really look at... at so a question that I get a lot as well. So things, especially mechanical watches, uh, need background, need history, need relevance uh, to, uh, to to really speak to me, let's put it this way. And the question I get often, start off with vintage, pre-owned or new, and let's say vintage and new, what would you say to starting uh, watch fanatics that are starting off? What is your advice there? So me, myself, to give you an example, I love the heritage bit like you. And I believe that the watches used to be more stylish, more refined back in the day. But I love the sturdiness of modernity and the innovation. So I have a new Navy time and an old. I have old Speedmasters. I have new ones. So I double up because that's the story. Uh, it's actually, it's exactly something that I'm doing too. Uh, look, it really depends. Uh, vintage watches force you uh, to... Uh, they're rarely single watches. Okay? Uh, they're not watches you can wear in the rain. They're not watches you can wear when it's snowing. Uh, you can't take them to the beach, uh, etc. Uh, so vintage watches have to be pampered. Uh, so uh, going vintage only uh, is something I wouldn't advise. But uh, actually, technology-wise, uh, innovation uh, isn't such a huge, uh, a huge thing in the watch industry. Because if you, we've actually reached peak tech in 1969, and anything after it is rather irrelevant. Uh, so no, innovation is the reason. Sturdiness, reliability, serviceability. Uh, so okay, so only isn't what I do. I go modern, and then typically modern watches and, and look at their background in history and look at the vintage watches they are based on. This is would be my approach. So now I want to talk about where these two intersect. The 806 that I know you were the driving force behind, so the 2018, I believe, 806 re-edition, I think was the first time that the watch industry made a almost to perfection replica in a modern version of an original can i say that uh yes it's uh look the uh the re-edition and as i told you the brightling uh strategy is uh the so-called general catalog core catalog watches and uh i think all of them or many of them have all the, the elegance and, and uniqueness 
the models uh, require, but they're everyday watches, of course. Uh, uh, watches you can wear 24-7, take to the beach, uh, etc. Uh, the, then we've got the capsules where modern colors, reinterpretations of iconic designs uh, find expression. We see that in the, the airlines capsule of the Navitimer. We see that in the current Super Ocean 57. You'll see much more in the years to come. And then we are doing one re-edition per year. And I wouldn't say I'm the driving force. The driving force is actually Georges Kahn, who was crazy enough to tell me, go ahead and look for perfection. Uh, and uh, from a commercial point of view, uh, it's probably not the smartest thing to do an in-house caliber uh, for a 15-minute recorder of less than 2,765 RV. All the others would take one of the calibers they have. And even mm -hmm. if the old one was a 15-minute recorder, let's do 45 or 30 because we have it on stock. Uh, so uh, actually it's down to George who decided to, to give me that influence. Talking uh, about George. Look for perfection. How was the first uh, time you guys met and how did you meet? Uh, how did we meet? It was early August 2017. Uh, and uh, I was in Italy. It wasn't in Sicily. It was the Veneto in a beautiful hotel uh, with typical crazy tourists, beautiful old villa, a huge pool and all the idiots uh, in the hotel ran to Venice. And we were totally alone, huge pool. We were solo at the pool. It was beautiful, lovely day. Uh, my phone beeps, I have an Instagram message. And this was when uh, there were rumors, unconfirmed rumors that George was leaving uh, Richemont and was taking over Breitling, okay? So my phone beeps uh, and the Instagram message says, this is Josh Kahn, can you call me? Uh, so that's how we started to talk. Uh, I called him, we spoke for an hour, more than an hour, I was running up and down uh, next, to the, next to the pool. Uh, and then uh, he came to Vienna quite, quite soon, days after, after he officially took over. He came to Vienna uh, with uh, Lionel and, and uh, Alex. And we sat for hours and uh, he was like, I hope he won't mind if I say that, he was a bit like, like a kid uh, uh, Christmas evening, you know, because why would he? Why would he mind? It's. I mean, he has passion for watches, and he yeah, has a passion for writing. He didn't. He didn't really. He knew the current line. He knew the icons. Everybody knew. He knew about the Navi timer, uh, but he knew very little about the depth uh, of uh, the uh, the back catalogs, uh, the Datoras, the Duographs. Uh, those beautiful 
uh, early premiere, etc. So uh, he was lucky, really lucky, lucky him and was, lucky us. Uh, lucky, lucky him and, and lucky us. And this is uh, we're actually drawing from from a huge well of, of uh, innovation and ingenuity, both technical and and in design. And of course, as I said, we're doing one re-edition per year. We're trying to do it as well as technically possible. Uh, and uh, there's there's several weeks when I, when I'm the, the most hated person in in Grenzen, uh, because I'm driving them crazy. And we're doing six, seven, eight prototype runs until every detail is really perfect. And I don't know if you. Uh, on the on the first Navi Timer re-edition, we still had some imperfection on the hand-painted loom. Uh, on the 765 Avi, we're really close to perfection and, and we're as good as, as the best loom artists were in the 1950s. The, the dials really look precisely like, like uh, they did uh, when the watches were originally born. Beautiful. Compliments. I love them. I enjoy them very much. Um, Fred, I see that we're chatting and chatting. We're running at 65 minutes. We didn't give our guests and viewers any chance. Shall we jump to them? Yeah, please do. Okay. So somebody that's posted already a comment at quarter to eight, so he's been sitting ready. That's Dan. Dan occasionally likes things. Is I believe okay. you're your biggest fans. He sent me a message beforehand. He says, please tell Fred to, that I apologize beforehand for driving him mad. I truly adore him and I really admire him answering all his questions. So he runs a show together with Arthur called Call the AD every Sunday, I believe, 5 p.m. Central European time. So make sure to check them out. So he has a lot of questions. Um, I'm, look, I'm scrolling to the very long list of comments. Um, so he's getting excited here. There's some chat going on between all the viewers. I'm skipping all of them. Um, first question here, you see, he's saying that I would like to apologize to Fred for constantly asking him dumb, annoying questions on Instagram. So here are some more serious ones. Um, his first one. I read on a Fratello article that you said the name Timer was released in 1954. Why does Brighting say it was 1952? Uh, look, uh, because uh, the development of the Navitimer started in 1952. Internal development of the model. Uh, there was a communication between uh, 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 John Karasik, the sales manager of Bachmann, of their distributor in, in uh, the United States, uh, who had close contacts to AOPA, and they started to discuss that new model and develop it. Uh, then sometime in the mid-1970s, uh, Willy Breitling, I don't know why, decided that this was the year the Navi Timer was born. He probably, probably it was 1972 and he wanted to do uh, a 20 year 
whatever. I have no idea what the reason was. Uh, now, the fact is that mass production started in July 1954. We have ledgers, we know when it started. So we had prototypes before that were shown to Teopa, shown to, to, to the Wachmann people uh, uh, in New York, but mass production actually started in 1954. So as we had uh, several 1952 uh, I assume it was 1972 and he had some launch ideas. There he wrote, the chronomat started in 1942. The fact is the mass production of the chronomat started in late 1940. So, marketing so trumped reality. Yeah. <laughs> well said. For those that don't know, a lot of people think that the chronomat was first ever conceived in 83 with the rouleau bracelet by the Schneiders. But that name was a computer and and mix of chronograph with automatic. So um, and and that's what chronomat is, and it's the, actually a different case. So that's the watch. Watch uh, uh, Fred is referring to. Maybe he has a physical one lying around. Fred, I don't know if you want to share. Um, you grab that in the time being, and I'll scroll to a bit of more comments. So we have uh, Melvin from the Watch Four crew. A Dutch crew of collectors. He writes, where's the wrist check? Well, it took a while, but we did it. Dan writes, I want to congratulate you on the 86 million. If you want to switch back, because I think it's really an important point. Good. That's uh, good. Here, uh, can you switch to the screen or the uh, or the camera, whatever, whatever you've prepared. We'll do both. Okay. We'll turn to the camera because I prefer real over pictures. Okay, so this so looks a yeah. bit like a Navy timer, but it's not. Yes, but it's uh, far from it. The Navy timer, uh, A, stop saying Navy timer. It's navigation, and it yeah. has nothing to do with uh, ships. Just a sec. Yeah, so that's a good point, Fred. Americans say Navy timer, but there's no Y in there. There's an I, uh, Navy timer. It was always the Navi timer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, some people decide that they prefer to, to call it Navy timer. But no, it's navigation and timer. So if we want to look at the history, we have the original chronomat, and it wasn't chronograph automatique. It was the chronograph from mathematicians yes. originally. <laughs> The first smartwatch of the uh, smartwatch chronograph, it was sold for businessmen, mathematicians, and engineers. And it was a slide roll calculator on your wrist. 
So the Navi timer actually is just a variation of that chronomat. Yeah. And this is uh, the oldest industrial design still in production until today. I think the Porsche Gmünd uh, was 1942, where the very first designs and prototypes. Uh, this was patented in 1940. And uh, if you look at the watch and look at the current Navi timers, the design lives on in 2020. And I assume it's going to live on in 2030, 2040, etc. So this is probably the most iconic design of any brand. And it has defined Breitling DNA until today. And the Navi timer was actually just a variation of this particular watch. So here's a better shot. Yeah, is anybody old enough here to remember Mario Lanza? Probably not, because even I'm too young to really remember him. Uh, this is one of those uh, unique pieces that's the only original Chronomat 786 in gold that seems to have survived. And this was owned by Mario Lanza, who was before Elvis Presley, one of the American superstars. Uh... Stunning spread. Okay. So this is the Chronomat. Thank you. So Dan writes to you again, I want to congratulate you on the 806 re-edition. I can't stop wearing mine. And along with my 3570, Speedmaster is my favorite watch of all time. So thank you for sharing that, Dan. We have Rocky from the Watch 4 crew waiting for the reissue of the Copilot 7650, yachting. Any chance this beauty will be reissued? So lucky you, Rocky, he's going to grab his. I think I didn't take. Nope. No yachting. I apologize. Not uh, <laughs> no yachting. No yachting. Just the Unitime and a regular uh, uh, 7650. <clears throat> so, for those that, that don't know the 7650, uh, this is a slightly beefier variation of the Avi, uh, launched in 1969. Stunning. Okay. Let's see if I have a picture of it. Uh, the short answer is this is not... Uh, uh, it's not off the list, uh, but there's no decision uh, regarding timing yet, but it is on the re-edition potentials. Okay, guys, all in favor, start spamming George Kern on Instagram. Good luck. <laughs> uh, George is a bit unsure if uh, the yachting uh, has enough of a following, uh, so... Uh, but I think we can convince him. Good. Okay, guys, keep, start spamming. So I know you still hear me, Fred, so I continue. My friend Gary from Swiss Made Obsession, right here on YouTube, any chance we'll see a re-edition of the Cosmonaut 809. I so want this, he writes. Please make it happen, Fred, please. I promise uh, 
that I'll do my very best. Uh, let's. Uh, so, what does he say? Uh, does he want the the uh, slim bezel or the wide bezel? I guess Gary, which he is a pilot, so Gary would, I guess, want the wide bezel because he's OG and pilots need rugged. Stunning. Okay. Uh, so, yes, this is on the list. I can't comment on dates, but I wouldn't be surprised. This is one of the core icons. This is the first Swiss wristwatch in space. Uh, it's a relevant watch that's <coughs> maybe a bit too uh, widely forgotten and uh, I assume we'll sooner or later have it, yes. I love Navy Navi timers. I love cosmonauts. The Scar Carpenter story stuck in my mind. Question for you, those that don't no, and the image is upside down, but what's special about this watch, it's a 24 hours dial, means it doesn't run uh, twice. Switch to the picture, switch to the picture, test okay. picture. Here it goes. Okay. Perfect, okay. So we have had two versions of the early cosmonauts the white bezel, which is 43 millimeter, that has an interesting story. Why was the white bezel cosmonaut? Uh, this is actually the, the epitome of, of two watches. Scott Carpenter called Willy Breitling. Funny enough, he called Switzerland. He didn't call New York. Nobody understands why. And uh, Jack Karasik was a bit hurt when that happened. So Scott Carpenter was, uh, he was ground control for John Glenn for the first flight in Australia. And he met a group of British pilots there who had Navi timers. And uh, to quote uh, uh, Scott Carpenter, uh, the astronaut, they were dandy watches, that's what he said. Uh, but uh, he wanted a 24 hour dial so he just picked up the phone, being uh, an astronaut, he was probably, uh, let's say, uh, somebody who really believed in his importance. Uh, he called Willy Breitling and said, Willy, uh, I want that watch, but I need a 24-hour dial. And while you're at it, uh, that 40-millimeter bezel is a bit too slim to comfortably use it with my space gloves. So Brightling did a larger wide bezel series. Uh, these are very rare watches and, and almost none survived. Uh, a wide bezel cosmonaut 24-hour watch according to the specific defined design by another astronaut. Stunning. Now a question pops to my mind, Fred. We all know the Moonwatch only books, which are lying here on the table. <laughs> are you working on a book like that? Uh, yes and no. <clears throat> I'll tell you what my problem is. Uh, the Moonwatch, and with deepest respect for Omega, uh, uh, there's just too much. The, the Moonwatch starts in the mid-50s uh, and 
ends, I don't know, I, I, I'll, I'll leave it to you when it really, when it ended being relevant. I remember some, some uh, limited editions by our friend uh, RJ and the Fratello Pro that are truly impressive, but most of the, of the others are just, just rebaking the cake. Uh, so, uh, Breitling started with relevant watches in 1913, uh, had uh, the first uh, uh, dual pusher chronographs in 1934. Had the, in the catalog of 1946, Breitling had 70 different chronograph models, uh, one icon next to the other. So a book in the depth of, of Moonwatch only would have to be a 7,000-page book. Neither do I have the time, nor would anyone be able to. So that's a bit of a problem. So as you said, choose a niche yeah. and then go for it. So guys, we want a book, right? Spam Fred. OK, next question, Fred. Dan writes, Fred must have a walk-in watch wardrobe. Can you imagine? Yeah, I can actually imagine that, Dan. Well put. Um, there are a lot of comments going on about the rainbows. This one, I'll give a stage. Rocky writes on YouTube, still waiting for my Super Norwegian Heritage 57 rainbow in black. Tell George. Well, Rocky, I trust that George... It's either watching live or will we watch it? So he's seen your comment. For the rest of it, I'm shutting up. You know what I think. Um, there's a lot of love for the rainbow. This is my colleague Dala, your mutual buddy. He says, I love the rainbow on YouTube. Dala, thank you for watching. I miss you actually backstage, buddy. Um, Melvin's actually asking a good question on uh, YouTube. He's also part of the Watch 4 crew. In the process of creating the perfect re-edition, what is the most difficult part in your opinion and why, Fred? Uh, there's uh, uh, actually, uh, the, the, probably it's because it's getting so much better than it, than it was. Uh, it was a bit of a, of a cultural thing uh, in the beginning. Uh, to convince the dial manufacturers to do uh, hand-applied loom because they said, we can do it more perfect on the robot. And I said, yes, of course, you can do it more perfect, but it loses its soul. Mm. Uh, the, uh, it was difficult to, to uh, rediscover uh, that that pride in detail in many ways you know if you look at, at vintage watches uh case for the cases are extremely precise every chamfer is is sharp and 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 uh perfectly made robots have funnily enough a hard time duplicating that so you have to try very hard and, and make sure you reach that, that level of perfection. Mm -hmm. So this was, was hard, as I said, it, it took, uh, then if you look, uh, uh, easy dials like the 765 Abi, each number, each character is different. 
On the Abi, there are four different trees. Each one is different. Each tick is different. So what they did then is to, to be as, as sharp as, as they look. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, actually, it looks like a non-serif, uh, a non-serif like a grotesque uh, font, but it's actually a serif. It has minuscule serifs, hand-drawn minuscule serifs, and they disappear. You don't see them anymore, but they add to that that crisp sharpness the, the, the vintage watches had. And this was the, the uh, most complicated thing was to, to tell that poor dial designer he'd have to redo the dial again because he forgot the minuscule serif of one of the, on one of the minuturitics. Uh, and uh, it, he didn't see it. But of course, you can tell if you look closely. You see that that it looks, it loses the Christmas in the Christmas in the current uh, in the in the segment of of the dial. So this it was a cultural thing, really, uh, because Breitling uh, is of course an industrial uh, watch manufacturer. It's not uh, one of the independents who will produce five watches a year. This is industrial mass production. And this is what Breitling always was, but they had that the tendency of, of perfection in industrial mass production. And bring to bring that, that back, really, uh, it's, it's different details they, they, they look for in, uh, with modern watches. With vintage watches, you had to rediscover certain certain cultural aspects of it this was the most complicated thing thank you for sharing um, awesome thank you. Yeah. Thank you. so um we're actually an hour and 25 already how are you on time uh i'm fine okay so let's keep but running watch this will be uh, published on theaces.com so they can watch it in chunks. We'll make snippets. I'm having fun. Uh, we're getting schooled here. We still have a loads of comments coming in. Fred, this is the most popular show, um, it seems. So um, on this one actually is, I don't know if you, do you know Nicolette, Nikki? Uh, I don't think, uh, maybe. You should uh, actually uh, meet her one day. She's an amazing lady. She is a long-time collector. I've known her for over two decades already. Great photographer as well. She actually sparked my passion for Rattrapants because she made amazing photographs of moving Rattrapant hands on the IDMC forum back in the days. I'm talking about the 90s, beginning of the 2000s. So she writes awesome collection and she knows what collecting is. Thank you for watching, Nikki, and sharing. Um, Dan proves that he's your hugest, your biggest fan. He writes, Fred, can you please ask Brighton to make a capsule collection Navy timer BOAC edition, please? Uh, I, uh, the problem is that, that it isn't that easy uh, to, to get the rights to, to logos, uh, but uh, you should write to Tim Zeiler at Brighton. Are you listening, Dan? Sorry? No, I'm saying I'm talking to Dan. I said, are you listening? I'll message him. We should write to marketing. Uh, but as I said, uh, there will be 
future uh, capsule editions. I'm not sure whether there will so soon be another another Navitimer Airlines edition, but but never say never. Uh, we've had uh, somebody asking about uh, the 7650 yachting before, and many people probably don't know how it looks. If you switch to the to the picture desktop for a second, we can put that up. Okay, so for all those uh, that don't know uh, don't know how 7650 yachting looks, that's also interesting because it's normally uh, these colors are called 1970s colors. Uh, actually, Breitling introduced those in 1964 with the 765 CP yachting. It's the same watch design, slightly smaller. Stunning. Okay. And Rocky likes it because it's a Dutch flag, red, white, blue. Okay. It was Rocky who wrote it. Stunning piece. Good pick, Rocky. So let me see. Victor is my buddy works in aerospace writes wow not my make really but he what a knowledge fred thank you for watching victor and commenting um melvin asks in your opinion do you consider bradling to be more a diverse watch brand or pilot watch brand uh, good question it it is uh, uh most most definitely the the most important defining uh, product line for Breitling is the Navitimer, and it has established uh, really iconic uh, position in the market. So uh, if even if you look at the past, uh, aviation was always from 19, the mid-1930s onwards, always a mainstay of Breitling. Breitling produced cockpit chronographs for the uh, for the British uh, Air Force, uh, Breitling produced cockpit chronographs for for Boeing and and McDonnell. So, most definitely, if we have to choose between the two, uh, aviation was always a major element for Breitling, but so was diving. But again, diving was a small niche in the 1950s. Uh, and uh, if we're looking at quantities, Breitling probably sold 30 aviation watches or more per dive watch they, they manufactured. Good answer. Thank you. Great nugget of information. And next is Victor again. He writes, love the way you moderate. Thank you, Victor. Same I do here. my best, but this is great fun for me. Dan loves the interview. Um, Dala asks, which other brand you think could use a bit of watch Fred magic? Good question, Dala. It's an excellent question, but I can't answer that uh, because it would be unfair. Uh, and uh, but I, I think several would. I think uh, which one? I think several brands would, without doubt. Uh, some, I, again, I'm, I'm too close to one brand uh, to, to really talk about that openly because it, it would sound like criticizing and it isn't because I love many brands dearly and I'd, I'd love to see them 
uh, reborn in, in all their glory. Uh, and uh, several could use a bit closer interaction with the fan base, let's put it this way. Put very uh, elegantly and eloquently to help answer this question, just look at his Instagram feed, guys. It's not just Breitling. And he gave an, uh, a feedback about Omega, but you own a lot of Speedmasters yourself. So you truly have a wide passion for watchmaking. Hugest, hugest, hugest respect. Yeah. Uh, but uh, as I said, uh, it's so easy to criticize. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, I have huge respect for anyone who lives in, in the current market and, and survives in the current market. Huge respect for any company that survived the quartz crisis, uh, etc. So True. criticizing is always easy. Because you have a lot of watches of amazing watch brands that did not survive. So that's what you're referring at. So Dan comments again. He loves the Pan Am Navy Timer, the capsule collection. So that's a recent model. And he writes in brackets, sorry, Gary, I know you hear this all the time. So I have a question for you on this topic. There was a lot of criticism about these uh, airline capsule versions, which I loved. I think they're fun. They're, they never existed in that configuration, but it's, it's a, a salute, a tribute to that zeitgeist of that time. What is your personal opinion on these models? Uh, I love them. I love them. It's fun, right? It's about fun. It's more than that. Look, uh, uh, there are watches that uh if Breitling uh, would have survived under Willy Breitling, mm -hmm. uh, he would probably have produced something similar mm -hmm. to the Pan Am because he did it with other models. They did colorful variations. He just didn't get around to do it with the Navi timer. Because if you look at, at colors, uh, so if you want to switch uh, uh, again, that's such an, such an example. So Vili was a color guy. Vili uh, was a red hands guy. Uh, and uh, just the fact that, that uh, the quarks crisis uh, really came over Breitling and the whole industry uh, like, a, like a tsunami. Uh, and then, of course, Vili uh, was... was uh, not a healthy man. He knew that uh, his children were too young to, to lead the company through a crisis and he was too old and weak to do it, so he sold it off. Uh, but uh, I uh, can definitely see Willy Breitling do a Navi timer that looks very much like a Swiss Air uh, capsule or TWA capsule of the current Navi timer. So I'm very happy that you're sharing that information. So when you guys go to work, you literally transport yourself to that time and say to yourself, what would Willie have done? And does this fit? Oh, that? Absolutely. That's, uh, nice. that's actually, if you look, but uh, it's the same thing with the new chronomat. Uh, yeah. But we actually did, I think, I think I, I can safely say that, that uh, look, the chronomat, not the 1940s, the 1984 chronomat. So the Schneider uh, chronomat. 
that Schneider Chronomat was really the watch that, that saved Breitling from oblivion. Uh, extremely important. Uh, but then during the last years, it became, look, it's fine to be heavy and fat if you're an old man like me. Uh, but you can't really be an old man and be a successful watch company. Uh, you have to stay innovative and young. So uh, some of the, the Navi, you know how the sales figures of the Chronomat developed during the last years, okay? It became too large, it lost its character, etc. So what we did with the new Chronomat is we, we really tried to step back in time, understand what made that watch so successful then, take those specifics and, and rebuild them with a modern twist uh, to uh, uh, th that new design. And this was the longest design <coughs> uh, birth of all. We've had several theoretically production-ready new chronomat that were just not good enough and were scrapped and started from zero again until we really thought we have it and it's, it's as good as, as uh, that icon deserves. So yeah, sometimes you, you go back, you think it looks fine on screen and on paper, and then you hold it in your hand and you say, ah! Uh, uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a long story and, and uh, you go back and back and back. And I admire Georges for you know, saying, okay, yes, guys, we may lose half a year, but this just isn't good enough to, to be the new icon. I want to add to this story that I'm urging all the viewers to really spam uh, George and the team and everyone, but it's not in vain because they really, really listen. And Dal and I are both huge fans of the Rouleau bracelet. Uh, I grew up with my dad in the early 80s wearing Navy timers. And then in 83, it came out. And I remember him wearing that watch. And as a kid, it was only 39 millimeters. Well, it was huge back in the day. It was thick. It was I've never seen such a bracelet. I was in love. So when George, those that don't know the Rouleau, you want to switch the desktop again? Yeah. Because we have to assume that not everyone, everybody knows the Chronomat or knows the Rouleau. So it's totally unique, uh, 1980s design, launched 1984, and uh, quintessential Breitling, uh, but, but totally new. It's everything different and the same at the same time. It's a totally different design, but it really has the spirit it needed. Yeah, literally. It's the modern in incarnation of that watch. And Dal and I started using the hashtag for fun, bring back the Rouleau. And in chats with you and with George, he listens. And you guys listen to the market. It's not because of us, but you guys feel the pulse in the market and the need. Now, I have a question for you on this topic. Now, I start to realize that I'm getting old, that this watch when I grew up was modern, ultra modern. But today, it's almost retro vintage what is your personal definition fred of vintage because everybody uses the term differently i make my life simple and say 
25 years is vintage, 100 years is antique. But everybody has his own definition. Yeah. Uh, why? Uh, those years don't really work. Uh, uh, it's really periods. For me, the closest I'm getting uh, uh, is uh, anything that's not originally designed to be a wristwatch. Okay. Is, an, uh, is antique. Okay. So uh, we're talking mid-30s approximately. Uh, that I've got another picture that, that shows that, that relatively well. Let me see if I can find it. I was sure I had it. A lot of people also say 85 before after is uh, like an era. Yeah, uh, let me, let me, uh, if you put that up again. Uh, okay, here we are. So <laughs> we've got that, that conversion from, uh, and here we are talking, here we are talking uh, late 1920s, early 1930s. Uh, most of the watches still had the design of the pocket watch. Yeah. It was somehow strapped to a wrist. Yeah. <coughs> so I'd say anything that, that still has that original pre-wrist design is for me an antique watch and not a vintage watch. Uh, then in 1934, we're Breitling patenting the dual pusher chronograph. And actually, with that, with that new technology, they started to redesign the look and feel of the watch. And what we have here in the bottom is a 1938-39 design mm -hmm. that actually looks like a modern mm -hmm. uh, classic chronograph launched by uh, Patek, Breitling, whoever, mm -hmm. uh, in the year 2000. So. Again, antique would be anything still based on pocket watch designs, vintage anything that, that basically resembles what we expect the watch to look like today. And my cutoff period would actually be uh, Super Luminova. Okay. Okay. Uh, so anything, uh, uh, anything that's approximately approximately uh, late 80s uh, early early 90s okay uh, so this would would uh, then be modern modern classics okay so that's where I put the cutoff uh, really is uh, uh, because there we start to to look at, at uh, machine applied loom uh, a much more mass industrialized uh, under massive cost pressure competing against courts uh, etc so a lot changes during that period interesting that's where i end vintage because years, i mean in 20 years from now it would probably still be the same so the I agree. Would still be uh the 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 transfer to to super Lominova. I agree. So, a trick question for you. What is the most contemporary watch you have in your collection that's not a retro or a tribute or whatever? Would you ever buy an MBNF Uhrwerk kind of watch? 
Uh, me, that's truly contemporary, pushing the boundary. By ambient, uh, okay. Uh, I admire ambient F. I don't understand the work design language. I admire the technology. It's it's not the design doesn't doesn't speak to me. Mm -hmm. uh, the design of the resource, for example, does. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but that's a very personal. I admire Grable Forsey. I admire uh, Grönefeld. Uh, so there's there's many many watches that I'd love to own. Uh, problem being, uh, if I have two hundred fifty thousand euro to spend for a watch, I'd probably go vintage. <laughs> so the holy grail often in vintage is Patek. Do you own Pateks? Because I hardly see them on your feeds. Uh, I own one Patek uh, that was handed down to me from my father, and I don't wear it because I don't like it. Mm -hmm. uh, and look, the problem about Patek is I'm a chronograph person. Uh, uh, and, and then I'm always looking for the best examples uh, in excellent condition of the relevant models of a particular brand. So we are looking, if you're looking at vintage, we are looking at half a million plus, uh, looking at looking at, at Patek. Uh, and this would very, very quickly force me to start selling watches. <laughs> So that could be the answer to your addiction, the antidote. <laughs> still, it may still happen. I really admire them. On the other hand, uh, the ones that, that I've seen, and again, please don't don't interpret that that, that as, as disrespect. But I'm also in in many ways uh, looking at watches, uh, looking at cars, uh, those super ultra luxury Koenig's egg, uh, etc. Uh, even McLaren's, uh, that, that isn't what, what makes me salivate. Mm. I like good cars. Mm. Uh, I like style icons, uh, but I'm looking for mass produced, uh, products and it's similar with watches. Uh, Deepest admiration uh, for for uh, the uh, the independence. Deepest admiration for Patek, and probably it's probably it's you know the fox and the sour grapes uh, talking because I'm an addict. I wouldn't need one Patek. I would need a dozen. Uh, so you stay away. Uh, so I really I really. On top of cars, on the wrist shots, I see you have a range. Modern one? Do you have vintage cars? And I lost my lost my earphone. Here it is again. Come again. So I said on the wrist shots on your Instagram account, I see you have a range and a modern one. Do you also have vintage cars? No. Uh, and this is one of the most lucky because again, vintage cars. Uh, I mean, they are similar to watches, but they're a lot dirtier and need a lot more space. And as, as hard as it is to service uh, vintage watches, sometimes almost impossible, uh, it, it can be uh, 
commercial suicides to fall in love with vintage cars. So thankfully I'm not. No, I like classic cars. I've been driving Range Rovers since the mid 1980s, actually. Uh, I stopped counting. Uh, I think it's it's number 11 or so, something something like like that I'm, I'm driving now. Uh, and uh, I mean, for a very short period, I had a non-vintage retro design car uh, that was uh, a Jaguar XJ 4.2. And that was a very, very lovely car, but it, but just, it was impossible. Going from Vienna to Munich, you know, you never knew when you'd arrive. It's it's normally a three and a half hours drive, but if you took the Jaguar, you'd be lucky to arrive, and maybe you'd have to spend the night somewhere on the Austrian lakes because the car broke down again. But it behaved like a vintage car, but it was new. Yeah. So, Fred, I we're we're almost running to two hours. I think we should slowly end it. I do want to give a few chances to people that join later. One of them is Arthur from the US, who is the nemesis, Dan's nemesis, and they do the show together. So these guys are having like a full-blown chat on YouTube and Facebook. But um, I wanted to say hello to Arthur. So he says, sorry, I'm late. He's, he was still working. He commented a lot of things, but I am picking the good ones. He would love a Cosmonaut re-edition as well. Um, these guys are goofing around on Instagram. It's actually funny to watch guys on Sundays. And they don't have the similar watch always. So they're goofing around in our comments as well. I'm skipping them, guys, because this is a serious platform and not meant to goof around. Um, but what is funny, um, let me see, Dan shares some nuggets of information. He's seen a Brighton cockpit chronograph instrument on an English electric Canberra. That's true. My dad actually has a few cockpit clocks made by Brightling. Um, Melvin writes to you, Fred, thank you for answering all my questions. You are truly a walking encyclopedia. Love your passion about watches. Um, Dan shares that Arthur and him have worked on a Pan Am aircraft, so it's very relevant to them. Except Arthur is the sellout and wants a GMT master. Well, he's not a sellout. Dan, I, we had a chat about this. You can love multiple things. I love Navy, Navi timers, Pan Am, and I have a GMT as well. Uh, one doesn't exclude the other guys, so stop bickering and just get them both. Um, then we have a new visitor, Karen Hiranandani. Welcome. She writes, Dan talks awfully a lot about the Pan Am. Dan, it's time for you to pull the trigger, buddy. Um, <coughs> I don't know how long they'll be around, so I, I'd really pull the trigger. That's what I told him. That's what I told him. Um, so they keep on going. But Fred, I wanted to thank you so, so, so very much. It's really a lot longer than we planned it to be. Yes. Uh, okay. I was happy to, to be with you. It was a pleasure. 
And thank you. Uh, uh, hope uh, to uh, see you again soon in real life. Soon, soon, I really hope so. The next guest is next week, Thursday, on November 5th, Laura Bichego. Although watch lovers not might per definition be named to Julie, but she is marvelous. She creates mechanical gold jewels that even men love. So tune in then. I want to say thank you, thank you. Fred, send my love to your lovely ladies, and I'll see you soon. Thank you, my friend. Bye. Bye-bye.